This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3559 for Thursday the 24th of March 2022. Today's show is entitled, Linux in Laws S01E52. The ZIG project and is part of the series, Linux in Laws, it is hosted by Monochrome, and is about 69 minutes long, and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, an interview with Loris Crowe of ZIG fame. Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open-plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Welcome to Links in Laws, Season 1, Episode 52. Martin, how are things? Yeah, things are good. How are you? And more importantly, can't, how is our guest? Can't complain, Martin. Can't complain. But before we go into our guest, how is the situation shaping up in the UK? I understand that Lizzie hasn't stepped down yet. No, she well, she won't anyway. This is this is comes with a job, right? You don't I get, see. Get to resign. <laughs> so you can't resign. You simply Apply. die or whatever. I yeah. see. Okay. Unlike, uh, what's her name, Merkel? She resigned, didn't she? Yeah, she, she resigned. Oh, exactly. It's official. Hmm. Yeah, she's going back into physics. There's so, an episode of... How, of, how many of years of... Uh, uh, 16. Years of, no, no, of uh, next uh, government negotiations going <laughs> to happen now. About 12? <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, if you want to know, by the way, people, if you want to know about the future of, of Mrs. Merkel, as in the ex-German Chancellor, there's an episode of The Dark Side last year, basically, that gives a, mm. that gives a little bit of a clue at what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And more specifically, the episode, uh, the Halloween episode of last year. But, 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 but this is not about the past, but, the, but rather about the future. So, Martin, why don't you welcome our guest? Yes, uh, tonight we have a special guest who is someone we know from a few years ago. The past, yes. Past, yes, yes. <laughs> well, uh, the recent past, let's put it that way. Yes. And he's heavily involved with a programming language, which yes. comes to tell us all about tonight. Yeah, that was the point in time, basically, uh, I think even before you defected, right? Well, I think Loris defected first, if I'm not mistaken. Well, he did. Sorry, I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't use the term defected now. But Loris, without further ado, why don't you introduce yourself, and all riddles will be resolved very soon. <laughs> Hello, guys. Um, well, 
Uh, wait, Martin, you defected? Yes. And I don't know, I guess I put my marketing skills that I gained at Redis Labs uh, at use now. I mean, I'm putting them at use now at the Z Software Foundation. Yeah, this is, and full disclosure, this is all, uh, this is how we all met. Yeah. <clears throat> Martin, myself, and Loris, of course, were working at Redis Labs when it was still called Redis Labs. Uh, Martin has defected and has defected since again. I'm still with Redis, as it's now called these days. But this, not, but this episode is not about Redis or or VMware or Brightlight or whatever it was called, Martin. But rather about the Zig the programming mm -hmm. language and the Zig Foundation. Yeah. So, Lawrence, without further ado, why don't you tell us a little bit about the foundation and the programming language as such? Sure. Uh, and also, I, I guess I need to do a good job, right, to convince you guys because I I listened to your last podcast. You did. I did. A, Martin, so that's a listener. Good. Excellent. Very <laughs> good. You guys didn't sound super stoked by Zig when you were discussing it last episode. Well, we don't know anything about it, so why don't you... Indeed, we don't. Us. <laughs> Other than it's a programming language. Yes. So, okay, Zig is a programming language. We, on, on the website, we have this tagline where we say that it's a general-purpose programming language. Um, you know what? I'm bringing it up. I'm going to bring it up and read it uh, directly. That Please doesn't sound do, sexy, but uh, here's the thing. I can justify each word, uh, which I think it's... Uh, uh, more interesting exercise. So Zig is a general-purpose programming language and toolchain for maintaining robust, optimal, and reusable software. So the idea behind Zig being a general-purpose programming language is that it's a programming language that doesn't have like a runtime and it doesn't have dependencies on things that you can find on like full-blown personal computers, but that maybe you wouldn't find in embedded devices. So, uh, for example. You can't really program uh, tiny embedded devices with Python without weird compromises. In Zig, you don't have that. It's a tool chain because you can use Zig to compile C and C++ code uh, and cross-compile it. So, like Linux to Windows, ARM to x86, and that that it's non that is non-trivial. It's weird, but C and C++ have always been weirdly hard to cross-compile. Um, and finally, uh, the robust, optimal, and reusable is just how we like to do, to describe how an ideal Zig program should look like because Zig puts a lot of emphasis in uh, 
handling errors. It doesn't have exceptions, for example. Uh, so when whenever a line uh, can error out, you know it because um, error is part of the return type and stuff like this. Also, we uh, as a language, Zig is very uh, explicit. There is no hidden control flow, no macros, and like the, the general ethos of the language is to be. Um, easier to read than it is to write. Sometimes you write a bit more, but the idea is that who comes in and reads should not be confused by your code normally. I like that. Hey, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like a modern C slash C plus plus slash Rust contender, if you will. It's in the same ballpark, roughly speaking. And how did it come about? I guess did someone just decide one day, or oh, I'm going to invent a new programming language, or was there something specific that I thought, oh, this is no good in in C or C plus plus, or yeah? Uh, so I think that the story is okay. Do you want to know the story that I like to tell people, or do you want to know the the, the real story? The truth and the whole truth. <laughs> both, both actually, if if it's if yeah. possible. Okay, so, so I'll start with the one that I like to tell. The one that I like to tell is that, so the creator of the language is Andrew Kelly, um, who uh, at the time was working at OKCupid. And apparently OKCupid has a, is a giant C++ code base. Um, even though it's a website, at least that's, that's the part that everybody knows about, right? Um, but apparently it's implemented in C++. So... Uh, the story that I like to tell is that Andrew one day was put in charge of a messy C++ code base and I told him, well, you need to maintain this. And he did the only rational thing, like the shortest path to maintaining a C++, to maintaining a C++ code base, it's to invent a new language and rewrite it in that. Um, that's what I like to tell. But the reality is that um, I believe that Andrew was... Um, has always been interested in audio processing stuff. So like making uh, digi uh, digital music, right? Um, and if you want to do tuning that works with sound, uh, it needs to be very efficient. You cannot have like garbage collection pauses, stuff like this. And so he looked at a few languages and he wasn't happy with any uh, that he tried. And so he ended up um, basically working on Zig. So this is the official version. What's the unofficial one? Well, no, the second one about audio stuff, it's the official version. Ah, the version okay. that I like to tell is the OKCupid okay one, the one where he, he had it. to work on a C++ code base, but that, that one is not true. Okay, so no Sicilians involved, no money changing hands, that sort of thing. Mm -mm. I not see. This, not yet. <clears throat> okay. I, full disclosure, I had a very brief look at the language over the last couple of years. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Zig was invented about 2015, 2016, something like this? Uh, yeah, I think it checks out. I don't remember precisely when. There's also, you know, the initial part where, like, it's a private repo, so nobody knows about it. Then it becomes a public repo, but then still nobody knows about it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm not exactly uh, clear on on that period, I guess. I joined Zig more or less around release 0 0.4, I believe. Got it. Going back about 10, 12, 13 years ago, um, was just invented by Google, 
Mozilla had just dreamt up this, or somebody at Mozilla, sorry, I'm probably I should probably more, be more precise. Somebody at Mozilla had just dreamt uh, up this requirement for a new language because C++ and C didn't cut it anymore in terms of total cost of ownership of the code base, technical depth, and all the rest of it. Hence, Golang, or affectionately also known as Go, was oh, and, and, and Rust were born. Now, if I take a close look at Zig... It does remind me in certain quarters of both Rust and Golang. It's not fully object-oriented. It does support structs. That reminds me pretty much of Rust. Enums are very close to Rust. For example, if I take a look at the error type, and we're not getting too technical here, that reminds me um, of really of Rust. Uh, where do you see the differentiator between, say, Golang and Rust in a Z context? Um, so I think that the, um, th there is some, uh, difference. So th there are, there are parts of the Zig syntax that kind of remind of Rust. Um, but I, I, I know Zig. I've been doing Zig professionally now for a while, for more than a year. <laughs> and, um, I still like Given that, I don't have a good, an easy time reading Rust programs. So even though part of the syntax are similar, there are some big differences when it comes to how programs end up, writing, end up written at the end of the day. I would personally um, say as a still imprecise way of describing uh, the, the differences, but just to as a first approximation. By all uh, means. Yeah. I think that Rust is a language that loves abstractions and complicated stuff in the same vein that C++ does, while Zig is more on the C side of the equation, so on the side where um, you don't want to go too insane with abstractions. Now, that said, um, while I personally uh, clearly am definitely in the camp of simplicity, so I, I definitely prefer... Uh, the Zig approach compared to the Rust one. Um, obviously, there are some advantages to each approach. Uh, there's people who can make the C++ work for them beautifully. And so, uh, I mean, more power to them. That's my point. Um, but, yeah, so that's the bigger difference. I would say then, then if, you, if you were to compare Rust and Go and see where Zig uh, is in, in, in that spectrum, um, yeah, maybe it's an in-between in some ways, although it doesn't it doesn't map perfectly because Go is garbage collected, Zig isn't. Um, I would say that Zig is a simpler Rust. It's um, it's a systems programming language in a way that I don't think Go truly 100% is. And, but on the other hand, it does um, share with Go an appreciation for simplicity. That said, go like simplicity to a minimalistic level that I think um, it's kind of unique of Go. And even though I like Go a lot, uh, I really like Go, but um, I don't know. Some things are a little bit too minimalistic for my taste nowadays. Interesting perspective, Floris. Many people do say that Rust has a very steep learning curve. Having learned Rust myself, and full disclosure, I'm not 
I wouldn't I wouldn't consider myself a Rust expert by no means. I dabble in Rust a little bit here and there, but that's about as far as it goes. I can concur with the entry into the program language is not the easiest one especially given the given the concepts like ownership of of variables how memory is managed in rust and all the rest of it i fully concur with your observation that probably rust is too heavy on on abstractions and it's an interesting perspective that you see this closer to c now full again full disclosure i'm really old so i learned c about 30 years ago, give or take a few years. When I take a look at the programs and the mark and, 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 the, and the website tells me apparently because of the LLVM backend, you consider ZIG to be a drop-in replacement at a lower level to be, um, to be very similar or rather off C. Uh, how do you see this relationship from the huge code base that is out there? With regards to C and Zig maybe being a logical successor to C in that um, regard. Yeah. So we have um we have an actual slogan for this. Um we the slogan is maintain it with Zig. And um it's on the website, but it's also the title of a blog post that I wrote a while ago. And uh, I think that we are going to use for something. Uh, we're going to use it for something else also in the future. So, the idea is this: you can use Zig as an in-place replacement for Clang. So there's a um, okay. Zig uh, CC command. If you do Zig CC, then that's a Flag-compatible interface with Clang. So you have a C project. You compile it with Clang. You used to compile it with Clang. You can swap in Zig CC. Now that that alone doesn't sound too uh, interesting. Why would you do that? Um, Clang is plenty good. Why toss in another thing? Well, here's how it works. You toss in ZigCC and your stuff keeps working. Then, with a tiny little bit of work, depending on how uh, complicated your project is, you can tweak a little bit your make files to uh, remove, for example, uh, target-specific capability checks. Like, for example, you know how sometimes build scripts are trying to look if your system supports a given feature or not, but those are tied to your system. So if you remove those, and clearly you, uh, how can I say, you do that in a reasonable way uh, so that you don't like remove a check and then assume that something through is true when it's not. But the point is you, you do it correctly and you can now cross-compile your project. We actually wrote a, bo a blog post series when where we actually did this with Redis. So step one, replace your uh, GCC or whatever, your C compiler with ZCC. Step two, tweak a tiny little bit the variables that you feed into the make file and add the appropriate flags to Zig. And it's literally just dash target um, x86, Windows x86, Linux, whatever you want. And now you can cross compile. And we actually, in that blog post, cross compile Redis. So uh, we did it on stream actually while testing this stuff out the first time. So. Uh, like I was on a Mac and I cross compiled a version for Linux and I sent to Andrew and um, uh, he was able to run it. Um, and that's step two. So cross compilation, enabling cross compilation. And by the way, if you were to try to cross compile a C project by yourself without Zig, 
it's a bit more complicated than just setting the target variable. You need to bring your own sysroot, you need to bring your own uh, C library for the target, and there, there's a lot of work that you have to do that it does for you automatically. Step three, though, and here things start becoming more interesting, um, May, uh, build scripts are sometimes like there's a soup projects have soups of build scripts like they have a make file but then make doesn't work on windows so they also add cmake because somebody likes cmake then somebody else likes something else uh, windows needs its own batch files or whatever curse thing people do on windows so you have always these projects where they have um sometimes they commit the autoconf stuff sometimes they don't i don't know it, it's a mess um Zig has a build system in the, integrated in the language. So you create a build.zig file, and Zig can use that to basically do what you would do with make files. Now, this is interesting because if you do that, you remove your dependency from make, cmake, or all this stuff. So now the compiler is also the build system for you. So you reduce a dependency and made your project a little bit more multi-platform. And that's actually something that it's already being used by... Uh, I can think of Wasm3 and a few other projects in that space that are um, actually have adopted. Uh, they have a build zig file in their in their repo. So you, if you have zig, you can just run that and you're good. Um, and that brings us to the final step. So here's here you can see the maintain it with zig uh, story fully complete. Um, you have a C project. You keep it in C. You don't you don't start rewriting it right away. But when you want to add functionality, you can create a zig compilation unit that the zig compiler will be able to compile. You will be able to export CABI symbols, functions, uh, types, structs, and stuff that interoperate with everything. So it's like it's one extra compilation unit like any other compilation, C or C++ compilation unit that you would have. Uh, although we are limited to the CAPI, no C++ ABI, so... Uh, let's say that Zig is more friendly towards in that perspective. But you have your your Zig um, compilation unit, and now you can link everything together. And we do that, for example, also in the blog post. Uh, we take Redis uh, and implement a new command in Zig that then we link into Redis. That's maybe not the correct way of adding command to, commands to Redis. But the, but the the when we wrote the blog post, the the perspective was of us being the maintainer of a C project where we don't start rewriting everything. We just add stuff as a separate compilation unit. And if you like Zig a lot, you can, if you want, start tackling your C project one compilation unit at a time, like you replace it with an equivalent uh, Zig implementation. And, and you, so you swap one piece at a time. And if you want, over time, you can rewrite it in Zig, if that's your goal. If that's not your goal, that's perfectly fine too, because the point is that since Zig can compile C code and we have ABI compatibility, uh, for example, uh, there are projects out there that are just uh, basically packaging a C project into a repo that has a build.zig file and maybe a Zig uh, syntax sugar layer so that you can use the zig file that gives you, you know, nice zig types instead of um, what the C API would return to you. But it's not even, but the second step is not even necessary. Um, even just having a build file uh, would be amazing and zig would be able to use it. 
Okay, uh, sorry. Before we go any further, I should probably have prefixed this epi- this part of the of the episode like the really technical deep down stuff before before we lose the two members of the, of the audience to listening. <laughs> maybe we should probably introduce. We should probably clarify a couple of uh, of, of things. LLVM, of course, is a, a compiler framework. Let's put it this way. That is uh, available on GitHub and also has a fancy um, project website. You'll find the link in the show notes. Uh, essentially, it's comparable to the GNU compiler suite in terms of it has a backend that is in charge of code generation for a couple of things. And then it has a program language specific front ends for the various program languages. Rust is using LLVM. Uh, so if you, if you invoke Rust C, which is the Rust compiler, you essentially invoke the LLVM backend for code generation. Similar, the C lang or clang, that Loris just mentioned would actually be the C front end and C plus plus. Sorry, and and C lang plus plus would be the C plus plus front end for C and C plus plus programming languages feeding directly into LLVM. Now, Loris, the build system you mentioned—that sounds pretty much like something called Cargo for Rust. For those few people out there listening who do not know what Cargo is, essentially Cargo is the Rust equivalent, I'm simplifying things here, of the make or auto make build system for Rust. Cargo it can pull down dependencies, can, can compile dependencies and all the rest of it. So what make and auto make and all the GNU tool chain equivalents took about I'm tempted to say 10, 15, 20 years to really be user-friendly. In terms of simplifying things, it only took cargo about, what, 5 to 10 years max. That's my personal opinion on the whole thing. But maybe, Loris, you have um, an opinion of uh, about your, um, um, of yourself with regards to this build system that you just described in comparison, for example, to, to cargo. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's a fair comparison. To, to be... Uh, bit more precise, Cargo is also a package manager. Correct, we, yes. We don't have yet the package manager part, but we're going to start working on it in like, I don't know, probably three months from now. So we want to also have that. It's just that we are slightly, it's, it's a bit too early. Um, okay. But here's the deal. There's one thing that Cargo cannot do that Z can do, which is compile C code. Cargo can fetch your C dependencies, um, so Rust projects can depend on C code, they, and they do do that. But when when Rust uh, sees when Cargo sees that you have a C dependency, it uses the system's compiler, the system, the, the C yes. compiler in your system. Correct. To yes. C. So it, in a sense, Cargo cannot fully work as a, if you will, build system and package manager for C projects. Um, while Zig can compile and cross-compile C dependencies. So um, let me give you one example of uh, how this is critical. And, and by the way, while this is, um, if you in from this perspective, one thing that Cargo cannot do, it's not the end of the world, though, because, uh, because you can use Zig CC from Cargo. There are a couple blog posts out there. One I wrote myself called uh, Zig Makes Go Cross-Compilation uh, just work, and somebody else uh, saw my blog post and did the same with Rust, and so there's another blog post called uh, titled uh, Zig Makes Rust Cross-Compilation Just Work, where basically they had this Rust project that depended on a C library, 
and they configured Cargo to use ZigCC as the system's C compiler and C++ also. Um, and, and now they were able to cross-compile. So the, what, going back to the um, package manager uh, slash build system perspective, um, the aim for the Zig build system and package manager is to become a major C build system and package manager. Um, if you want an example of this, I'm going to share a link with you all, uh, both. Uh, there's a tweet by Mitch Hashimoto from HashiCorp, uh, which recently went public. Uh, so apparently Mitchell, uh, I don't know, instead of enjoying the big money that comes from going public, I would assume, <laughs> started packaging C application, uh, C libraries with Z. Reply. Um, shifting, shifting back um, from technical things a, a little bit. If I take a look at GitHub, the code base that is out there with regards to Golang and Rust is just overwhelming, especially the adoption of Rust in the, in the last, I'm tempted to say two years, never mind the adoption of Golang in the last seven years has been amazing. Projects like Docker come to mind and other more like system oriented projects that require a more more like a low level language like C or more I'm almost tempted to say C++ have have adopted these two languages left right and center where do you see zig in this context and if i take a look at the at the code on github there are not that many projects out there that use zig as their main implementation language and by the way of course the language apparently is self hosted if I'm not completely mistaken. Um, it's a factor of it being a quite a, a young language as well, right? So. Well, uh, true, yes. That, that, and that's the reason why I'm asking about the roadmap here. Yeah. Mm. So, okay, maybe let, uh, so first of all, let me acknowledge that, yes, you are right. There are not that many uh, Zig packages out there yet. Uh, that is fair. It's also because, in part, um, there is no package manager. So, you you can imagine how surely it it reflects the level of adoption, no doubt there. But also you start having a proliferation of libraries and packages once you start having a package manager that allows you to easily leverage them. So we don't have that yet. So um, I think it's normal for these numbers to not be exploding yet. We'll see after we publish the package manager what happens. Now, okay, so this is... Um, libraries on GitHub. As for the language itself and being self-hosting, so the language um, at the moment is not self-hosted yet, sure, but we are about to. That's the current uh, main piece of work that we are doing right now. Uh, long story short, Zig is implemented in C++, but if we liked C++, we wouldn't be doing Zig. So <laughs> we are uh, trying to uh, replace the current implementation in C++ with a self-hosted implementation. This self-hosted implementation, aside from being uh, more of our more to our taste, um, has a couple of uh, interesting aspects to it. One is that it's going to be uh, considerably faster than the current implementation. Zig is not that slow at compiling. Um, but the new self-hosted implementation uh, is really designed to be much faster. It implements uh, many of the data-oriented tricks, in case um, uh, people have heard this term. It's like just techniques to make your stuff go, go fast. 
Um, and on top of that, we also want to implement uh, incremental compilation with uh, basically, let's say, a new way of doing incremental compilation that should be uh, also allow. It should also allow us to basically do rebuilds of arbitrarily big projects in less than a millisecond. So the idea is you have a big project, you've compiled it once. Obviously, the bigger the project, the more it takes to compile it. There's no escape from that. But you have this giant project. Let's say it's, I don't know, Chrome or uh, uh, Zig Chrome. And you change one file, one definition somewhere. The, uh, recompiling the project after that one change should be basically instantaneous. Uh, that's what we're aiming for. Uh, and there are a lot of tricks that are necessary to, to, to get there. So uh, this is the, the self-hosted uh, work that we're doing right now. I'm personally working on implementing the uh, doc system for the self-hosted compiler. That's what I'm working on right now. So uh, the, the thing that basically generates documentation automatically for Zig projects. Um, but it will take a while before all this stuff is complete. So as I was saying, I don't know, three, four months, something like this. Uh, after that, Zig will be self-hosted. Interesting. So with regards to the overall ecosystem, you have a foundation in place, fair enough. So does Rust. So does, I'm almost tempted to say Golang, but we have this kind of tiny search engine behind Go, so that's yeah. probably an unfair, an unfair comparison. Are you sure that Go has a foundation? No, that's what I'm saying, but it has a search engine backing it. Yeah, I don't think it does. Uh, I will say one thing, though. Uh, the Rust Foundation is very different from the Zig Software Foundation. Do you want me to go into the legalese? By all means, just go ahead. So, Zig is a 503 nonprofit foundation. Uh, sorry, 501c3. While uh, Rust is a 501c6. So, these uh, letters, 501c3, 501c6, these are like, uh, it's a pointer, if you will, into the specific paragraph and the line inside the, um, some kind of le American legal document that defines it, it, which... Yeah. Exactly. Sorry, for, for the two people in the audience who are not American um, tax lawyers, lawyers <laughs> is, of course, referring to the tax le uh, legislation in the U.S. with regards to nonprofits. Yeah. Links <laughs> made in the show notes. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Good luck finding them. I don't even know where to start. I mean, I guess you, you can Google the cycle, the cycle, um, uh, the, the acronym. But the point is, the point is, um, 501c6, 501c3. Now, this is a tiny number that changes, but um, a 501c3, it's a non-profit foundation that can accept donations. A 501c6 cannot accept donations. So not, the Rust so not even not even the ones under the, under the table. I mean, uh, you mean lobbying? <laughs> I'm joking, Lawrence. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so they cannot accept donations, and so the Russell Foundation is not allowed to accept donations. The only thing that they can do, well, I guess they can do work, just like the Z Software Foundation can do work and being paid for work. But what the Rust Foundation uh, basically, uh, uh, the way they get money is by having member companies pay, pay a fee. 
So in some ways, they are like a, they are more like a consortium. Uh, I, I think that we, here in Europe, we would think of a, of that type of organization as a consortium. So they are a group of companies with a shared interest. Companies pay a fee to um, get into the foundation, and um, and that's it. Uh, one interesting side effect of this is that the Zsoft Foundation is paying its developers. I am being paid by the Zsoft Foundation to work full time on Zig, and so are a couple more people. Uh, at the Rust Foundation, nobody is paid to work on Rust, except maybe a couple of people who have administrative uh, tasks. So the developers are not paid to work on Rust. Uh, I think the the, fun, the fundamental difference is similar to Linux. Uh, the people on the, in, in, on the foundation are employed by different companies who are just chipping in with regards to making the project work. Whereas Zix seem to be different, apparently, in that case. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, also, because there are sometimes, I think, some interesting. Conflicts of interest, I think, when you have the second uh, approach, the one where you have companies, sorry, or the first approach, I should say, the one where you have companies basically hire your core contributors. Because on one hand, you have this, uh, if you will, natural uh, misalignment of incentives where um, companies paying these people to work on their stuff and secondly, to work on Rust um, or the other open source project, whatever that is. Um, but it's not just that, like one thing that happened recently with the Rust Foundation, which I found not very nice, uh, was that Rust had an executive director. There was somebody from the Rust project itself, uh, that had been there for, had been there for a long time. And, um, and basically uh, this person was, um, uh, was the executive director at, at interim, so only temporarily while they were searching for somebody to take the position full time. But he basically never renewed her contract after it expired the first time. And the foundation remained without an executive director for like something like six months or something like that. And in the meantime, uh, when you don't have an executive director, the highest authority is the president of, of the board of directors, who was um, the uh, the person in charge of the Rust team at AWS. So AWS, basically, it's one of the biggest member companies. They have a bunch of board seats. Uh, they have the um, executive, sorry, the uh, president, the, the chairwoman of the board of directors at the Rust Foundation, and they also employ a good chunk of the key developers of the Rust project. And I don't know. I think that when you have an external organization, whoever that is, it, uh, for me, it's very easy to hate on AWS. But wh whatever the company is, even if it's not a company, you know, where um, uh, where they ask employees to pee in bottles, even if it's a much nicer company, um, it's still a problem in my opinion. So one thing that we do in the Z Software Foundation is that we know up front that we are never going to give board seats to any big tech company, period. Okay, interesting. Okay. Although now you might say, well, okay, then how do you guys ever accept, uh, ever expect to become big? And that's an interesting 
Well, what is the? I guess what is the objective? But first of all, I, yeah, I mean, you 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 mentioned the donations. So, so these are sort of no strings attached um, donations uh, to the project. Is that right? Yeah, correct. And and then the second question that follows on from that is is you know obviously the people uh, like yourself and and people developing the language. How do they? Uh, Earn their uh, bread on the table. Let's put it that way, right? It, uh, this is where uh, you know organizations that sponsor Rust programmers th that helps the or, or any open source project helps the project move along, right? So that that's if if in your case um, it's it's mainly done on a voluntary basis or, or uh, as a sideline, then you can perhaps imagine it will take longer to take off. Is that fair to say? Um, or how do you I, see that? Yeah, so I think that from a from a um, development velocity perspective, I don't think that not having a big company sponsor us makes much of a difference. I think it does make a gigantic difference more from a marketing perspective, because um, even though, for example, Rust deserves, I think. Uh, to be regarded as a very interesting new language and absolutely uh, innovative uh, when it comes to the borrow checker, etc. Um, well, I mean, you can also see that, uh, especially now that uh, AWS is in charge, there's a lot of uh, marketing money being spent into Rust stuff. Like the hype level is pretty high, and marketing money is being invested into you know keeping the temperature high. Um, in some ways, you could argue the same about Go. I don't know precisely um, how much marketing investment there, have, there has been in Go, but you know the fact that, that Google uses it, and then once it starts being used for one big project, then um, and by the fact that it's baked by uh, by Google, um, then that all stuff that helps for sure. Um, for Zig. Uh, when it comes to paying core contributors, it works this way. We have three contributors that uh, work full-time and are paid to work full-time. I'm one. Another one is Jacob Konka, who left Microsoft to basically uh, work on a in-house linker that we are using in Zig. I won't get too much into detail, but the idea of cross-compiling, like making a program, compiling a program on Windows for macOS, it's... It's not trivial, and uh, especially with the new Mac OSs that came out, uh, there was no linker able to do that, and so Jacob started working on this stuff. But uh, aside from these technicalities, uh, uh, and the third person, of course, is Andrew. Us three are the full-time contributors right now. Then there is a group of about, let's say, 10 people who are not working full-time, but who have contracts where they are allowed to bill hours to the Software Foundation. So they do some work, and they are allowed to bill um, a few hours every week. I, I don't know the... I don't remember the precise details, but you can think of it as, like, a... Um, and lower than part-time, something like this. Uh, these are current states. Obviously, the more donations we get, uh, the more people we would like to bring on board to work full-time. But the general idea is that we would want to always stay small, uh, like a tiny organization, no, uh, no overhead as much as we can so that we can stay tiny, and more importantly, that we don't end up like depending too much 
on one donor, on one big company, something like this. We, like, we don't want to end up like uh, Mozilla, who at one point had to fire a bunch of very good people just because they ended up, uh, just because then one deal that they had with Google uh, ended up not being renewed and that was a disaster. Um, from a marketing perspective, obviously, yeah, not having a big company in your board of directors, it's tough. They, because, well, they have money, and money is easily translatable into marketing muscle. Um, I don't know, you can have a Zig conference organized and entirely paid by the, this giant company, um, and that surely helps. We don't, we're not going to have that. Uh, but at the same time, I think that we are solving problems that are interesting enough um, that people have started to notice. I showed you earlier a tweet from Mitchell Hashimoto, uh, but we started, for example, recently uh, getting being paid to do offer a support contract to Uber, where they started basically to use ZigCC to cross-compile some stuff on their end. Uh, and uh, they wanted us to fix some corner cases with like old uh, Linux um, uh, glibc versions and stuff like this. Uh, and I think that uh, if we play our cards right, uh, for example, I'm I'm not really being paid to work on Zig the compiler. I do that as well, uh, but my job is more marketing focused. So. If you look for Zig on Hacker News, you will find a good number of things that I've written in the past that has reached the front page. I'm not the only one, um, but this is part of our strategy. So we are, we are more, I don't know, guerrilla style marketing, if you will. Which is an interesting question. And of course, the links will be in the show notes uh, with regards to the... Uh, Stuff that, uh, that 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 Loris just mentioned, uh, Loris. If I if I take a look at the spreadsheet, I see quite a few companies um, outside the realm of the usual suspects that have picked up on Zig. Uh, but of course, that pales with regards to the to the Googles of the world and the Mozillas of the world and the and the Microsoft of the world. I mean, there was a statement last year. Or was it before? I can't remember. Where somebody from officially from Microsoft said that, in a nutshell, I'm simplifying things, of course, that Rust basically will be the next C at Microsoft in terms of it's that it's that technology stack that will be replacing the workhorse that has served Microsoft for at least ten to fifteen years as the main implementation language for. Of office, office software for, for some other quite interesting stuff over the years. How, where do you see this in terms of the overall industry adoption going for Zig? Um, I, uh, that's a good question. I don't have, um, so I didn't know about this, uh, Microsoft stuff. It doesn't surprise me. It kind of makes sense. Um, I can tell you that my knee jerk reaction is, uh, I don't honestly care which language they use to implement ads in my start menu. So 
Um, I'm kind of jaded when it comes to Microsoft specifically, but th this is not about Rust. This is about Microsoft specifically. Um, but if you want another example, more uh, another recent example, um, where where Rust started being adopted uh, by by, a, by a, an important project, and actually in this one, Zig apparently was in the race too, but we lost to Rust in a sense, if you will, um, is Ruby. Uh, there was a discussion in uh, the Ruby uh, forum discussions with the creator, uh, Mats, where they were discussing re-implementing uh, a component of the compiler, the JIT uh, part of the compiler, from C to either Rust or Zig. And, they were, and then the contributors were asking the Mats, the, the owner of the project, uh, if it was fine to use uh, Rust or Zig, and then they ended up choosing Rust. So that's fine too. Um, honestly, from that perspective, I think that Rust and Zig are different enough that people that would want to choose Rust uh, should choose, and they really like Rust, they are not going to be happier by choosing Zig. I do think that there are a lot of people though out there who are would not be super happy to use Rust, and they would be happier to use Zig. Mm. And, yeah. An interesting perspective. Taking taking a step back now, if I take a look at the ecosystem, uh, starting for example with Python. Python has been around for the last thirty years. Golang has been around for fifteen, seventeen years, something like that. Rust has been around for ten years plus, give or take. When I take a look at the crates.io ecosystem, it reminds me of. PyPy, as in the Python package index, that took a, in, in terms of functionality and, and packages overall available for any purpose, parsing websites, anything basically. If, if I, if I take a look at Rust, I'm tempted to say that it took the Rust community about 10 to 10 to 11 years to get to the point that the Python community took over 25 years to get there. Uh, if I take a look at the at the Zig ecosystem, I don't think it's quite there yet. Okay, fair enough. You have been around for 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 seven years, so it it's it it takes a while to build an ecosystem. But if, as far as I'm concerned, actually a language and the adoption of a language or text tech in general lives by the ecosystem as such, where do you? To see Zig go in terms of overall community adoption, especially when it comes on comes down to the module ecosystem. Mm. Oh, I can tell you very easily how we're going to do much better than Rust. So I'm all ears. Uh, <laughs> so here's the idea: um, Rust is a fuzzy language in a in in a sense. So fuzzy as in uh, picky, because when you're using Rust, if you want to make good use of all the uh, things that Rust gives you, you cannot really, you don't really want to jump into C code, do you? Because C is unsafe, right? And you have to Correct, yes. close everything in unsafe brackets, and it makes interoperation hard. Um, in Zig, we're not that fuzzy. In Zig, we don't mind bit fiddling. We don't like undefined behavior, so some C stuff maybe uh, won't compile correctly. Uh, Zig, by the way, compiles everything with uh, undefined behavior sanit sanitization, so um, not every C library can be used right away, but the ones that don't have undefined behavior in them, 
can be used, and we are not as picky as Rust. You, we, surely we we would prefer as the implementation over a C implementation of something, but there is less of an uh, like impedance mismatch between Zig and C than it is between Rust and C. So, um, long story short, uh, from Zig you can make use much more easily of 40 years of C libraries. And okay. this, is, this is how it's going to start. The start is not going to be, let's say, re-implement everything in Zig. The start is going to be, let's package already good C libraries that have been out there since forever. They are basically currently being used everywhere. They are like critical infrastructure of modern technology. Let's repackage that from Zig so that we can use it more easily. And boom, now you have everything. It won't necessarily work in every single case, but the point is... Uh, we are not go we are not rejecting existing C libraries. We are embracing them, and it's much more easy to just fix the build script so that it uses build.zig of an existing C libraries than it is to uh, library than it is to reimplement it from scratch. Interesting perspective, especially from uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, full disclosure: I'm a little bit of a Rust fan, but fair enough. Uh, apparently, we both share that passion to some extent, Loris, but let me take a look at it from Rust's perspective. Okay. Rust gives you, I'm tempted to say, a very low technical depth in terms of if you can convince the Rust compiler to generate code, the QA phase in terms of fixing bugs and, and especially when it comes down to memory stuff is pretty short. C, on the other hand, you just go ahead. If you want to shoot yourself in the foot, that's fine. Now, I see Zig, if I understand the language correctly, somewhere in the middle. You can do a lot of things that you can do in, in C, and what you just said confirms this to a certain extent if you want to reuse, if you want to reuse C libraries. But Rust is explicitly, on the other hand, basically, tells you Sorry, um, you have to know what you're doing in terms of if you're using unsafe crate, you better know what, what the implications are. Because normally, and that especially goes for the ecosystem that is out there for us, uh, you are bound to save code. And so combining the crates, and this is very similar to Python these days. When I program Rust, first of all, I'm going to take a look at crates.io to see what's out there. Similar, if I want to do a code base in Python, I normally check out the Python package index. Because most of the time, and that goes for Rust and Python, I simply end up writing glue code. But if I if I check out Rust, in terms of if I stick to Rust, once I basically have my cargo definition file as in cargo.toml done, which is, this, which is I'm, I'm simplifying things, in the equivalent of a make file in 404C, the Rust compiler basically, because we're mostly talking about safe code, guarantees me a short turnaround times in terms of debugging. Uh, especially when it comes down to memory, to memory issues. Now, where do you see this total cost of ownership, especially with regards to technical debt going in terms of ZIG adoption? Yeah. If that makes any sense. It does. Um, that's definitely an open question. And obviously, Rust makes a, uh, is a very good, um, makes a very good proposition, uh, when it comes to safety and, and, Ultimately, I agree with you. The, the, the ultimate point is, what is the total cost of ownership? Um, let, let me ask you a counter question. So, I, But I would like to reiterate, 
I do believe that Russ is making a good offer. So I don't want to dismiss that. That said, which one would you prefer? Also, from a perspective maybe of um, ease of use, uh, being able to just import a Rust crate into your Rust project is obviously super easy. But from a perspective of total cost of ownership, or like the risk of bugs, right? You, you mentioned risk of uh, issues with memory management, but memory management is one source of bugs, right? There are also many other ones. So of yes, course, yes. would you trust more uh, using a newly minted uh, Rust crate that, that basically is a re-implementation of um, Curl. That's what they wanted. Okay, so Curl. Okay, yes. So from a from the perspective of total uh, cost of ownership and bugs, yes, Rust covers memory bugs, uh, memory usage bugs, uh, beautifully. But those are just one source of bugs. So, which one would you prefer? A newly minted crate that is a reimplementation of Curl or Curl itself? Because Curl itself is surely it's a, a C project with all the uh, danger that comes with that, but at the same time, it's very, very battle-tested. Um, so which one would you prefer? Interesting question there. Um, I would I'll, go for the, uh, I'll go for the original Curl. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, would, I would take a look at the GitHub <laughs> issues page, yes. <laughs> no, oh. joke aside, Loris, you're yeah. absolutely spot on. It, yeah, uh, that, that's a tough one. That's um, a tough one. Yeah, um, so my, my whole point... I would, uh, yeah. I would probably take a look at the adoption figures of Crate.io to see who's using this newly minted kernel implementation <laughs> to see what's happening. I don't know. Uh, give it a half a year, but for the meantime, I probably would be... I'm reluctant to say this, I would, but, I would, but, I would, but I would concur with Martin, yes. So my Although point it's is, unsafe code. It is. It is unsafe code, yes. But uh, at the end of the day, my point is that... Um, there's a lot of good that comes from Rust, but it's unclear to me that is the ultimate silver bullet when it comes to total ownership cost of something. And I don't believe that throwing immediately in the trash 40 years of C code is uh, the right choice. I'm being a bit too extreme here, maybe, because... Doris, C- I'm with you. No worries. Yeah. Uh, Rust can interoperate with C. But, um, but I think that more in general, especially for domains where memory management is not that complicated, while other sources of bugs are really more the problem, uh, like, I don't know, distributed systems, memory management most of the time is not complicated. Like, you have a request, and memory has to leave for as long as the request uh, survives, and you can do that with an arena locator. It's super easy. The problem, though, is that in distributed systems, you have a bunch of problems that come from the nature of distributed systems, and those are bugs where Rust can help you to some degree, but not 100%. And again, not to dismiss Rust. Rust is amazing. This is all good. The point is, it's not the ultimate good that nobody ever will able no. to... agree. To... Yes, absolutely. Because that so... hasn't been invented yet. Exactly. No, I mean, jokes aside, uh, Loris, I mean, these three languages, and Golang goes along the same lines to some extent, are targeting one specific area, namely system languages for system-oriented programming. Zika yeah. is in that area, C, C, this is where C comes from. Unix was implemented in C, and that's exactly what Mozilla has in, had in mind when they, more than 10, year, 10 years ago, they took a very serious look at something called Rust, a system language designed for system-specific things. 
and if you take a look at the crates that are out there, much of the stuff is actually targeted at system programming. Goes without saying, like the, the, the one you just mentioned, like Curl. Yeah. So I think that the idea of packaging Curl as a starting point, and then maybe slowly over time, after you have uh, come to an understanding of how you think it can be improved, because I think that rewriting without improving the interface, it's a, maybe it's not the best use of time. Let's just, let me just put it that way. So the plan is to have people just reuse what's already out there. That's already pretty good. And then only rewrite once you know how to improve on the original interface, on the original APIs and stuff. Okay. Yes. Um, You're looking yeah, you're listening now to the edited version of this episode. The, uh, the original version went about four, four, four hours. We went into the lower of the compiler details, but this, of course, has been edited out. You may find the the original version on something called LinuxInlaws.eu. But joke aside, no, Loris. Uh, let's wrap this up. It has been more than interesting to hear hear your perspective on things, especially where you see this going. There is if you've listened to a couple of episodes, there's something called the Poxes of the Week, where we simply discuss things outside the topic of the current episode as an anything goes. The Poxes basically are about things that you think worth mentioning, like books. Martin normally refers to movies, especially his drug habits and some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Like designer drugs and, and, and so forth, but really anything goes. So, Loris, what is your pick of the week, also known as a pox? Hmm, let me think. Hmm. Oh man, I don't know. I can only think about what I'm doing for a pox. on the spot, okay? <laughs> why, why don't you go first, Chris? <laughs> Uh, you see, I'm, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say uh, Miami Vice, as in the TV series from the 18th. <laughs> I've, I've just discovered, I've, I've years, just recently, <laughs> yeah, indeed, yes, but then I'm old, so Mark, that's okay. No, I've, I jokes aside, I've just discovered this recently, and I used to watch this left, right, and center in the 80s, and it brings back fond memories, but without to the final details, Martin, what's your box? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'll have to have a think as well. It, um, I don't think anything specific. You have, but... Yeah, you have about 10 seconds. <laughs> uh, you mention your wife. I, I can go in the meantime. So if we talk about movies, I watched this weekend, I rewatched this weekend the uh, original Lord of the Ring of the Rings trilogy, and yes, um, it was nice. I don't understand though why certain phrases became memes, like they are taking the hobbits to uh, Isengard. Why? Why that phrase became so much of a meme that they made songs with it? Did it? Okay. Yeah, there, there were like YouTube videos with basically this sentence repeated as part of a song, but that was only one, right? There, also, the the other one. Uh, you don't simply walk into Mordor, something like this. Um, 
Which uh, goes to show, Lawrence, that you're about 30 years younger than Martin and myself are. <laughs> oh, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Give or take a few anyway. One does not simply walk into Mordor. I think that has been uh, memed so many times. I, I, I can't even count how many I've, so I've seen of those. Okay. Um, but yeah, anyway, it shows that, I guess, internet culture has changed from that time to today because nowadays, I don't know. Uh, in some ways, the memes seem weirder. The movie's worse, but the memes are at least more relatable, I think, than in the past. I never understood them, the, the past ones. Okay. Martin. Hmm. Okay. Uh, since we're sticking with movies, I'll go with um, yes. a movie called Land of the Blind. Which is um, I watched uh, at the weekend uh, is from 2007, Let but it's quite—it's a, a BBC production. Uh, I don't think so, actually. <laughs> but it's, it was quite amusing. The show notes. Um, in that, um, it's basically about a, a, someone overthrowing a dictator with a revolution, and then the revolution becomes the new dictator. <laughs> so it's kind of. Which is even worse than the original dictator, so it's kind of, yeah. No, no, your enemy really is this moral. Parallel to the modern world, like back number one for a certain Mark, Mark Shuttleworth, are purely, what's the word I'm looking for? Incidental. Coincidental? <laughs> Inspirational, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes aside, no, uh, links maybe in the show notes. Uh, Loris, that has been more than inspiring. <laughs> thank you for yeah. the thank you for taking the time. Actually, what what we missed is um, uh, if people want to become involved in Zig. Um, yes. How would the they? Plug, yeah. Lawrence, go ahead. Yes. How do people can? How can people help? How can people help? Um, people can help. I think in three ways. One um, by contributing code if. That's uh, what I like to do because it's an open source project. You can go to uh, github.com slash ziglang and you will find our organization with repositories and we have weekly meetings on uh, to um, help people contribute to the language. Uh, number two is, of course, uh, donating money. We have a GitHub sponsors page uh, still on GitHub. Uh, also on the website, there's a... Uh, there's a big link on at the top. So if you go to ziglang.org at the top, there's a big link that tells you how to sponsor the Zig Software Foundation. And I think it's an, also an interesting place. It's an interesting page to read because it explains how the organization works, even if you don't plan to uh, to donate. And number three, and this is actually my favorite, you can contribute just by paying attention uh, because all these things okay. that happen in open source. Um, and how open source organizations interact with one another, they, having people see what's happening really can make a difference. When nobody's watching, um, you know, uh, organizations, open source organizations can behave in ways that you wouldn't expect from an open source organization. Uh, recent events in the, in the .NET Foundation, for example, are, are relevant to this point. And um, yeah, and more in general, knowing what we are doing helps us, you know, helps us also protect ourselves from people misinterpreting, deliberately or not, our intentions and actions. So um, that's my favorite last, way of contributing. Yeah, 
great. Uh, last question from my side, Loris. What is the license for Zig? Uh, what liberal one, like like um, Apache or MIT or something? Good question. Yes, it's MIT. MIT, you heard it here first, people. It's, it's a very liberal license. So yes. you can take the source code and do pretty much whatever you want with it. Yeah, and it's deliberately non-GPL. Like, it's deliberately non-complicated uh, for companies, let's just say. Yes. Um, people, this is a non-communist license, of course, because it's not GPL. As It's not part of the GPL <laughs> license family, but that's okay. We do We do make exceptions on this podcast. Well, that's another complicated story, maybe for another episode. <laughs> People, Linux-in-laws.eu is, is the, is the go-to source for, for the episode list. Pick and choose your episodes with regards to communism. We do have a five-year plan. There are regular cadence updates on the podcast, how we're doing yeah, with we regards to the five-year plan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and don't forget to check out the dark side, just in case. But enough plugs. Loris, thanks again for, for mm. being here. Um, hope to have you back soon for, for, an, for an update on Zig and all the best with the project. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license, Type attribution share like. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for the song Sweet Justice used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. In the Z community, we start calling this stuff like uh, that's a Linux moment. Uh, when you're using Linux and like your mic doesn't work or your screen share doesn't work, yes, and it's, indeed. it's indeed. a Linux indeed. moment. That's a Linux moment. <laughs> Have you copyrighted this term? Because it'll be in an hour. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. Today's show was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hosting for HBR is kindly provided by anhonesthost.com, the Internet Archive, and rsync.net. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.